0: Welcome back to the Sizzle Podcast. This is episode 20. Yes, I'll say that again. Episode 20 is a big milestone for us. And today I'm speaking with Jeffrey Boace, who is a teacher and author. A prolific author, actually, because since our podcast, Jeffrey has announced two or three more projects, which are really exciting. And I'll be sure to link to them in the description below. So we spoke during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. And that means two things, really. Firstly, that the sound quality is not uh, of the highest standard. You know, it's it's decent, but it's not the same as using studio mics. The second thing is that there's a little bit of swearing. um, Nothing to worry about. I think we were both just caught up in the fervor of lockdown. um, But... Yeah, I thought I should mention it as a a little disclaimer. It's such an interesting and far-reaching episode. I think it's going to be relevant to a lot of people. We cover topics like education, race. We talk specifically about Wiley, Kano, Stormzy, um, expert teachers. I mean, yeah, it was a real pleasure. And I get the feeling that I'll be talking to Jeffrey again and again as things develop in education and his writing so yes without further ado let's get stuck into episode 20 with jeffrey
1: hello joe hey what strange circumstances to be having a proper meeting no i know i mean it's interesting the the
2: connections that have been that have been happening now that didn't happen before I've had probably three or four really great conversations with people.
1: And, uh, yeah, I think people are just kind of, they're in a place for it. That's fantastic, yeah. Um, Maybe it's what people needed to, um, I don't know, slow down and take a few more deliberate steps in directions that they wanted to take in the first place, but you never can because you're always in transit. I don't know. Who knows? How are you? I'm good. I you
2: know i'm up and down with it all and um, today today wasn't a really a really up day i my, i got a bit of sun um got my heart racing a bit uh so yeah it's been cool how about you
1: yeah we're just um in in the routine with the kids and being on top of that and we're quite fortunate we have a pretty big garden so we can be outside a lot. Um so it's just kind of just, yeah, managing the juggle. Um, but apart from that, because I'm a teacher as well. So I've not been in school, but I'm in next week. I'm on a rotor system. Um but that's been quite light actually. There's not been as many kids as we thought would be coming in. So that's not been too much of a pressure. But yeah, it's just the uh yeah, just kind of, you know, juggling it and carrying on. But it's been all right. I'm just happy that we're all here and healthy together. So Oh, uh, yes. Yeah.
2: I think the my friends that have found it the hardest are the ones that are separated from loved yeah. ones. And it's like, they might not have even have talked to them or intended to talk to them, but the fact that they can't, now there's some yeah. anxiety there, you know?
1: Exactly, exactly.
3: Mm.
1: Yep. Strange, strange times. But thank you for reaching out. That's really cool. I know that we've been sort of trying to make it happen for a while, but it never did or hasn't yet. So... So it's cool that we're speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm excited. Um as as fate would have it though, mm. I
2: don't have my copy of Hold Tight. <laughs> it's 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 in Kent. <laughs> it's in Kent, there you go. Yeah, it's in Kent. <laughs> I've got I've got two copies of blacklisted, but it doesn't, it doesn't really cause I wanted to read the first line of Hold Tight. But, uh, but I can't. So uh, you have to imagine that.
1: Yeah. Never mind, never mind. Um I have a couple of copies of it somewhere on the bookshelf. Where is it? Oh, there's a copy. Oh, there's loads of copies over there. As there's a copy. Copy. Yeah, exactly. It'll, it'll be weird if there weren't any. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I suppose... Yeah, the podcast. So have you, it, are you, like, just creating content for it at the moment? Are you, are you, like, you know, building it? Are you in the middle of it, like... I I don't understand the podcast world. Where are you at with it? Yeah. So it all started with my
2: friend and colleague Yusuf. Oh yeah. So we um we we will, we'll just do audio. By the way, uh, we're we're not going to release any video. And um, the video is just yeah. for report. But I saw you trying to get the lighting. The lighting on. The yeah, way that's way. just like I see
1: my shiny forehead, and I was like, "What's going on? <laughs> like the shiniest." Greasy as warheads, so I was just trying to... Oh, Not to my <laughs> eyes, it, it's, in, it's in your head. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, it all started with my, my friend and colleague Yusuf. so we got asked to do a pilot uh, podcast episode for the RSA. Uh-huh. And, and we reached that, that's when I first got in touch. And, um, and in the end, that pilot didn't, it didn't uh, bloom into a full series, mm-hmm. but it made me feel like, huh, like I felt like something really exciting happened in me. And uh, I really like the idea of that long form conversation and the connection. And kind of, there's something that excites me around the capturing of that interaction. Right. right. That interaction will never happen again, you know. So that that's what got me excited, and so I started the sizzle, and it kind of it has a lot more psychological uh, elements to it now. It used to just okay. be long form conversations. Now it kind of. I, I use a bit of a psychological lens with stuff. Uh, uh, but um, it is firmly in the this excites me uh, bucket at the moment. So yeah. I've done, I've recorded probably nearly 20 episodes.
3: That's uh, loads.
2: I've released about, I'd say, uh, 14. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, like it's it's been a broad mix of people. Aisha, Aisha. Uh, has, yeah. So, um, Love Aisha, yeah, Aisha. Shout out to Aisha, um, and uh, yeah, I I think that there were lots of reasons I wanted to talk to you. Um, I think your work in education is really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, it is. It is. I'm in the classroom day in day out. It's so what I do. Whilst I'm also thinking about education on a sort of grander level. Yeah. Um, in there, doing it day by day, which is actually quite un- unusual for a lot of teachers who've been doing it for more than, you know, five years. Because I'm what, eleven years, twelve years, mm. or something like that. Double which score. is ne- which, which, which is nowadays quite long for a teacher, unfortunately. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I can't remember who it was, but they were talking
2: about expert teachers and the idea yeah. that because there's such a high level of exit at the beginning of the career. Mm. and, and you know, teachers getting older, we're going to lose a whole chunk of expert teachers. And, uh, oh, yeah.
1: And you just... Definitely. You yeah. can see it happening already. Really? Yeah, it's scary. There aren't that many mentors, like natural mentors who have honed the craft and have got their insights and have their requisites and are ready to pass on that knowledge. And there aren't many of those people around because they just... Don't stay in the profession, or they retire, and, and mm. younger people than them are also leaving. So, you know, so the craft of teaching uh, is something which isn't really talked about.
2: I so I one of the my key memories from being a teacher. I I would I only taught for two years, so mm-hmm. I I am part of what what we're discussing. But I I remember the way the more experienced teachers they would talk about cycles. Oh yeah, everything.
1: <laughs> every conversation's been had in yeah. the 80s and then and it's, it's like there's <laughs> there, it? are, there, are, there are no new conversations in education
3: <laughs> and i
2: didn't know that and so you know if you imagine you lose the more experienced teachers people aren't going to know about the cycles and you need those elders to, to hold the perspective on the conversation you know
1: yeah definitely definitely yeah they can get quite jaded but you know it's it's people who are serious about their about their craft that's that's what's quite rare in teaching I I can count count on like one hand the number of teachers I've met who were like seriously into the craft and have done it for decades and have really thought about it they're very special people actually.
2: Craft is a really cool word to use why do you use the word craft?
1: Um, I, I feel as though you're always getting good at something like no matter what you're doing even if you're just feel like you're not doing anything or or avoiding doing things or numbing or distracting yourself. You're getting good at something because you're just practicing that. You're just exercising a particular muscle and doing that deliberately Mm. is what I think craft is where you're reflecting on something as you do it and deliberately trying to get better at it and kind of honing it. So every experience of it, good or bad is part of the kind of active research or the, you know, all the kind of like practice or praxis. I think that's the word praxis, where you sort of like practice something and you do it at the same time. And doing that deliberately, I think is the key. It's not about doing it well. It's about thinking about I'm actually getting better at this or I'm having this experience, which is building on my other experiences because it happens accidentally anyway. So you can get people who are very good at being naughty or very good at being subversive because it's just a habit and they get very good at it but i feel like you know you, you can make more deliberate decisions about what you're getting good at and actually sometimes when you look up and kind of look at, look around you think oh my god i've actually spent a big chunk of my life practicing something and i do know how it works and yeah. i am good at it and i and then you you think a little bit more of it, and i know why i'm good at it so and that's what i think like craft is that's right. that's how i see it which is why that i'm still happy to be in the classroom, because no matter, no matter how mundane or how onerous it is, it's the point of like being in the craft, you know. Even if I'm doing something which I've done a million times, I'm kind of like, you know, honing something. So, and that is rewarding in itself. Just being able to do the thing that you're doing. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I,
2: I really like the the application element. So. I'm a an applied psychologist. I, I'm right. an educational psychologist. So, for me, I I will be absorbing theory all the time, but I'm also meeting people and trying to help schools and and and, yeah. and it's it's that interplay. And so, you know, my my the evidence base from the classroom and the context helps guide my reading, and then my reading shapes my yeah. practice. And 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 you know, it, 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 if you're not getting that feedback or you're not getting a chance to apply it, it for me personally I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to stay excited because yeah it'd be too theoretical exactly exactly so as an expert teacher how do you go about leaving and joining schools because I feel like schools are they're complicated ecosystems and as a as someone who never became an expert teacher I always felt like there was a stigma around you know you gotta you gotta earn your way in when you join mm. a new school so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking as someone who's just joined a new school
1: uh, yeah. how do you approach that now I mean one of the one of the most simple things is like can you be part of whatever team is around you and actually do you want to be part of that team because regardless of all the quirks and idiosyncrasies of any organisation there's a team that you're going to either be part of or not And that is ultimately it. So you can sort of like, there's a bit of a myth around like the Maverick kind of archetype, someone who's just like brilliant. Um, And a a lot of people like that. And sometimes they kind of play play up that narrative a little bit. You know, I've been at schools that have enjoyed the fact that they've got like Maverick people around them. But ultimately, it lives or dies on how strong the team is. And really what that means is is everyone kind of sharing the same core values. So schools have always got these values that they sort of either trot out or they put on the wall or it's in the mission statement. But I'm not even talking about that stuff. I'm talking about just the actual values shared by that school, yeah. which are often not even spoken about. So the school I'm working at now, you know, it's part of this massive trust. And really, they've just got a they've got a mission to sort of get schools in the north. Um, sort of recognised and to get kids in the North who are sort of overlooked and tend to not do as well as kids in more affluent parts of the country just to give them the same life chances. And that is it. Um, That's their sort of spoken, unspoken mission. And and it's all very, all the business of the school is kind of leaning towards that. Um, It's not about inventing pedagogy. Like some schools are into that. It's not about kind of uh, pushing a well-being agenda, even though that's obviously part of everything, but it's not kind of like trying to invent anything there. Um, It's not wrestling with the zeitgeist, like, you know, looking at what we're saying about gender, what we're saying about, you know, it's it's not that. It's just, can we put these kids into the same sort of game as those kids? Mm. And because it's quite clear and quite honest, um, it means that everyone's sort of like on the team. So you've got to very quickly... Going into any new, like, it's like walking into a room. You have to read the room really quickly and work out what's going on here. Like, what do these people believe in? And then you believe in it too, which is fantastic. Most teachers, thankfully, kind of share some level of benevolence and wanting to just help. Mm. Just like m- most teachers I've met are nice people um, because otherwise you wouldn't want to be around kids all day and spend that much energy on other people. Um so you read the room and you've got to just like think, well, do I want to be in this room? If not, even if you tell yourself that you do, it's never going to work out. And that that's when people peel away or get frustrated. But if those core values are shared, then you're right. It almost doesn't matter what some of the iterations of those core values are. But then there are loads of complications along the way. You know, like all, all the complications that we talk about, race, gender class, you know um, all the other isms all all that complicates it you know and that stuff is often not even unspoken but not even like recognized in the first place and that's what institutions really struggle with so I'm not sure I've answered your question there but yeah yeah
2: totally I mean I I think I I think about it in a similar way because so a lot of my work is therapeutic mm. so if you can imagine. Doing therapeutic work in a, in in an institution. I, I suppose in one way, in the best case, that can be amazing because it's a community and children feel safe there. And in another, another scenario, there might be lots of systems at play that are marginalizing or difficult. And 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 I have to create this bubble of, yeah. of, of therapeutic practice within this, you know, large.
1: Larger uh, organisation, so yeah, I totally hear you. Do you have anyone backing you when when that happens? Is it a case of finding that one person that believes in what you're doing, or are you always fighting the tides, or or our schools very very receptive. It really, like you alluded to, schools are so different. So
2: my my yeah. schools are all really different, and I think in some of them I am that person. I'm the person trying to back that, mm-hmm. um, and in other schools they you know, they're, they're asking me, how can we do more? So, you know, it, I, th- I think that's natural that people will approach it differently. But yeah, it's a real, it's a real mix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go, there you go. So I, I think I was really interested in your mix of how you spend your time. So you teach and you write. Yeah. And um I suppose I'm, I'm interested in how you managed to navigate that that process, alongside a family, and at least going to going to at least one gig. You know, nah, uh, one, so, yeah, Just one. As in, I know you went to a Kano gig, so that I, I it, yeah. There may have been others, but you know. Yeah, no,
1: no, that was the only one. <laughs> there you go. So um, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm um, my. My favourite movie is like Groundhog Day, like by a long way. That's like my favourite movie that speaks to me the most about the human experience and the idea that you basically just got, you know, this one like long life, which can be so monotonous and the same. And you've got all these responsibilities, you know, that you have to just like get through and trudge through them. But then along the way, you know, you sort of need to realise that any of these experiences are enriching and building you up and can be practised and got better at. And basically the thing that you're really ultimately building is how kind you are to the world around you and how much you care about community and how much you care about yourself as well. Like If you were two people, you'd be nice to yourself, you know, because people are horrible to themselves. So I just try to be nice to myself. Like whatever I've got to do, it's like, it's important, you know, and it deserves the attention um And so, most of it, like I've never sat down with the figures, but I, it, it feels like I spend a lot of time on all those things. So most of what I do is being a father, just in terms of like I spend I spend time at home, kids making that work. You know, just physical amounts of time. Writing is something which I don't do a lot of, but I think about it a lot. So I'm kind of always writing because I'm always like filtering things around me, and then obviously teaching how I make money on a crude level, but it's also the craft I talked about earlier. So that's something which I'm living, like I'm living that. And I guess the way I navigate it is is to not put them in a hierarchy because that's the first step towards like destruction. Saying that I wish I was writing right now or I wish I could be with my kids right now when I'm at school. It's like, nah, you you're where you are, you know, that's what you're doing. And it's the same. It's like you there's only one of you. So in a weird sort of way, not putting them into a hierarchy is really important. And what it means is that when something is exciting and when it feels like vital, then you make the time for it. And the trick is to realise what's exciting and vital. And actually kind of everything that I do is exciting and vital. So um, I've, a lot of people have asked me, how, how, how did you find the time to write like, a whole book, let alone two books, when you were full-time teaching and you were having two kids, and I was like, "Well, it's because I had—I've always written, which is something I've just in, enjoyed doing. But once I had a project that gripped me and excited me, it was harder not to write it. Actually, so I'll just be like writing on my phone in little five-minute slots, or in the evenings I'll just be like on my laptop." instead of watching TV or I wrote pretty much all of hold tight with my firstborn cradled in my arm at like three, four in the morning when I took him away from my wife. Um, and then went downstairs to give her three hours. That's when I wrote all of hold tight. And then I took it into school and then I'd write it in like a break time and stuff. And it was the same for blacklisted. I wrote the, all of that, when I was holding Blake, when he was in newborn, and then I wrote it in the little corners of my life, like on the toilet or whatever, you know? So, um, but I think the reason why it works was because it felt vital to me. It wasn't like just, oh, let me just write something because I want to make some money or something, or let me do this thing because I've always wanted to write a book. It's like, I had an idea and, and it had a momentum that pushed its way through. Because most of what I've written, no one's read. Like that's a fact. Like I've got, I've got tons of notebooks, like with stuff, and I've got blogs that, like, you know, this is some of the uh, some oh. of the notebooks. Yeah, yeah. Over the years, you know, it's like there's a few here. You see wow. all those? So it's just a few, you know. And it's just like stuff in here, you know, which is good. Some of it's amazing.
2: Are are they Um, themed or is it kind of like chronological? Just you write
1: whatever comes into your head. Um, a lot of the time depends on like eras of my life. I suppose there was an an era when I was writing a lot of poetry, a hell of a lot of poetry. Um, I've probably written more poetry than anything else, but like no one's read it. Um, I should publish it one day. I think that "Hold Tight" has poetry in it. Yeah, definitely. But this is a, this is the this is the other thing as well, is that, like, it's like all the things that I've been doing over the years fed into that. So when I look at whole type objectively, I can see, like, oh, my God, yeah, that's all the poetry I was writing or those are all the essays I was writing or all the little pastiches I was writing when I was a teenager. And you can sort of, like, see it in there. It's really, really funny. So... Yeah. Yeah. It's,
2: yeah. I imagine it's, it's like looking at... So... Some of my friends are having children, and yeah. you're with a child, and you see bits of the parents in the child. You yeah, know,
3: yeah,
1: you're exactly. Recognising that in your baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And then, and you also see like things that had a massive impact on you that you didn't realise. Like I had no idea that certain writers' styles impacted me so much until I was reading what I'd finished, and I could hear the echoes of people's voices. And I was like, fuck, it's like, I didn't realise that Bill Bryson had that much impact on me. Or like, wow. you know, or, you know, or just like, shit man, I can see like bits of Malcolm X's autobiography in this bit, you know, so, you know, but it's always putting thumbprints on you, everything that you're consuming, you know. So that's the beauty of it. There's a lot of conscious decision making and then there's a lot of like stuff which is in the zombie systems of your own thinking. Um, but that's why I think the cliche that it's important to read a lot and not just read books, but like consume the world a lot, but actually take it in. That's important because that's what comes out. So hold tight was good. Cause it was just like, it was a big splurge of all the stuff I'd consumed in the style, like filtered through a nice, like tiny needlehead of this thing, grime music, you know, but actually what was coming out was a lot of me and my life and my, thoughts and my experiences Mm. but just like kind of like lasered through you know through a tiny tiny vessel which is which is really arresting um and then blacklisted was something different i I suppose what was the original question i feel like i meandered there sorry you have to stop me every now and again because i'll just keep on talking about stuff in circles no no not at all i mean this is this is long form
2: unstructured conversation so where where, where, where we go you you struck me Something stood out around when you when you started talking about hold tight. Yeah, I felt like you became really animated. Maybe it was when we started talking about writing. I don't know, but I I suppose I'm interested to know now that you've had a bit of time since hold tight has been finished. Yeah, you view it as a project. Like I, I, I'm kind of curious,
1: you know, where you're at. I'm super proud of it because. um, 'cause it's just it's it's just really good man <laughs> it's it's just like it's really it's it's exactly the kind of thing that i wanna read right. <laughs> you know like I wrote the kind of the kind of shit that I like to read, and I really put and 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 it was like it felt like a flourish like a pirouette right. um yeah. like the whole thing I remember from the concept like oh, a list of songs would be amazing, which I've seen elsewhere, but not like that. And then actually writing it, it was just so, like, I, I, I could be so playful. Like, every chapter, I felt like I was a new writer.
3: Mm. And that
1: was the most playful thing ever. And when I got bored, I would just do something else. And because of that, the whole thing felt like a like a trick shot. But then, because it had the drive, I, I loved the fact that, like, I finished the project to the point of it being published and sold. That's part of the project for me. You know, I was like because I like completing projects. Um, and when I commit to a, a project, I'm like, "Now nah, I'm gonna fucking like do this thing, which is how I see teaching, actually. I oh, see it wow. as a lifetime project. It's not finished till it's finished. It's not finished till I retire teaching. Did, you, I,
2: did, did you, did that emerge as a mindset while you were teaching, or did you get into it like, this is my project?
1: Um, when I went to um, my last school, but one, And then I met certain people that were kind of deep into the long-term craft of teaching. And I got into well-being training and started to think about that. And that's when it clicks. and I started to really think about basically like making a stand, you know, like a deliberate choice of how you want to live Mm -hmm. and understanding your own insecurities and understanding your own motivations and understanding your own actual wants and needs and all that kind of stuff. And that's where you can then make a deliberate decision about, you know, so you aren't just gripped by your thoughts and feelings all the time and by external things, you know, like lots of external things like money or respect or, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's just extrinsic. But once you can narrow it down to, to your actual, you know, your actual core values, the ones you want to live out, who you want to be at your best, then every day is a chance to work towards that, which is really, really actually quite an exciting thing. Mm. And then, like I said, like in Groundhog Day, he becomes like the best version of himself. I remember watching that film, age like 10, and thinking, "That's that's it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you just basically get good at stuff and do it for the right reason, and you become the best version of yourself. I was like, all right, so that's the key to life. And then, but it, but it, but it takes effort. It, it takes like heavy lifting, so... um um but yeah and 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 also like work is not a bad thing like work is good Mm. you know um there's there's a, a, a there's an awful sort of like idea that convenience is good or like um things happening easily is good but actually work is good work in itself is like the the reward you know so i i like producing because it's It's evidence of the work that I put in, and also you got to fight through a lot of like pain or distress until you get to something good. So I've I've had like that's really happened after Hold Tight because I really wanted to do another one. I was like I want to do another project, and then you just write thousands of words that are going nowhere. So between between Hold Tight and Blacklisted, actually, I I was so like. I had so much to say about stuff that blacklisted happened quite quickly. Um, Weirdly quickly, actually. Like within a year I'd written that and that's 100,000 words and it was like good enough to get published. But then between blacklisted and now, I've written like tons of stuff that hasn't fired. You know, like I've got a bunch of, I've got like, you know, like 15,000 words of a novel here, you know, like 20,000 words of another nonfiction there like four kids' books I started that aren't really popping. Um, but it's all good because you've got to get out of your system, don't you, you know? In um, a
2: yeah. way, it's... it's. I think we can get fixated on this linear idea of I will progress and I will move from project to project, but actually, you might have projects you'll come back to. You know, in, in 10 years' time, you might be like,
0: oh, yeah, that's
2: how that yeah. child's book is going to finish now. And, yeah. then, and then suddenly exactly. it's ready you know? Exactly, exactly. Do you and think also the, the way that you describe Blacklisted happening so fast makes me wonder whether any of the thinking around that was happening subconsciously or
1: peripherally when you were writing whole Tight? Yeah, definitely. Blacklisted is like lifetime manifesto kind of stuff, you know? Blacklisted is about me trying to understand this one facet of my identity that for some reason is really important in the time I was born, like the pigmentation of my skin. It's just like random, you know, Like it shouldn't mean anything, but it means so much just because of where we are as a species. Mm-hmm. So I'm picking that. That's why the, I couldn't have written Blacklisted any earlier than I wrote it. Like, I'm not like uh, being, um, what's the word i look for? I'm not like, exaggerating there or being hyperbolic, I couldn't have written it any earlier, probably months, because I had to have been through a shitload of life Mm. and reflective points. And like being in a marriage and had kids and had to look, you know, stare down the barrel of like raising two sons and all that kind of stuff to even start to get into like what I what I was learning about race for myself. And actually it was it was really a research project. It was like you know, it was a thesis um, because I started writing. I thought, this is going to be easy. This is like, you know, this is like black person writing about being black. How hard could this be? You know, <laughs> but it's, it was really hard. I had to do so much research. I was just sitting there with like a baby in one arm and then just like books everywhere, mm. internet open, just learning stuff. I had to learn so much more than I wrote just to be able to write it, um, which is, which was actually again that process was the point of writing blacklisted. And then it's just happened to have been like neatly put into a product that other people can share. But that was a learning that was a learning journey for me. Whole tight wasn't a learning journey for me. Whole tight was me just going like whoo, just me just like getting thoughts I'd had out of my head and my iPod. But black blacklisted was like a curriculum in in my own race identity if that makes any sense well and in a way it's it's
2: amazing that you could put out something as a, a token of that you know so you, you went through this process yourself but you also put
1: out the, the crystallised
2: form into the world which is yeah you know, yeah
1: yeah it's a privilege that like mm-hmm. I, I feel like yeah it's um, it's a nice thing to be able to to create something in a format that is shareable. Um, a book, I mean, I was, I've was. i always loved, loved the idea of doing all, all sorts of products. Like, I love to make movies, and I've written loads of songs. Like, I've got whole mixtapes that no one's heard, you know, of, like, music. I was going to uh,
2: ask about this, because reading whole Tight made me wonder if you were m- musical. <laughs> really? Hmm. <laughs> how come because um, and even in the way you described it just now you talked about the playfulness yeah and bear in mind you know I, I didn't know you when I read it but yeah true I, it, I had I, I had this kind of emotive experience of the author is having fun with this and like th- that's
1: how I read it That there was enjoyment in the in the book yeah. yeah 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 yeah, 100%. I mean, musically, I kind of went through the route of uh, DJing first and the DJ kind of DNA is deep in me because basically that's one of my big, like, insecurities. I know this about myself, but I seek approval. It's my winning strategy. Um, it's one of the reasons that I write in the way I write and I am the way I am because I seek approval. Um, that can be debilitating, you know? Um, it can also be very successful, but it's good for me to know that about myself. And a DJ seeks approval. The DJ like basically has to get everyone happy on yep. the dance floor uh-huh. and play music that they wanna hear, but also educate them in music that they don't know about. So I I write like a DJ in that I get everyone on the floor and I, you know, I basically get people moving and energised and then I hit, hit them with cuts they might not have heard before to the same tempo as the thing that they're already dancing to mm-hmm. and I just fucking hit them with something that they have never heard before that I know is really, really cool and then it's like, what is this? But they're on the dance floor already and I know when I'm lowering the tone and when I'm speeding up, it's how I teach as well. I was just going like, to say, do I you do. teach like a DJ? Yeah, 100% hundred percent i 've got a debilitating fear of like losing the room um, and it 's not just about my performance it 's not just about me up there like being cool and like funny or whatever it 's about the work in front of them and the rhythm like there 's a rhythm to everything there 's an ebb and a flow. Um, the idea of musical a musical way of looking at stuff um, is is fascinating to me I, I, I once like wrote a whole proposal of how to structure a curriculum along Musical notation to make it symphonic, so all the subjects are like different instruments, and they and they need their own space, and they need a solo sometimes. And if it's not together, then it's just like a cacophony. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that mindset is definitely in hold tight because I'm basically just keeping the party going, and it just happens to be a playlist as well. So it's like even more like a DJ. Um, I'm trying to find. There's a, there's this really cool book. I'm just looking up on my shelves now. Do you, do you remember? You, you you might remember it. Do you, do you remember this movie from like 2000 called Time Code? It no. was like a bit of a. It was just, <laughs> It was like. It was a bit of a sort of like. Do you remember like films like Memento? Mm-hmm. You know, with Guy Pierce and all that. It was yeah. that sort of era where there were like quirky indie movies that were filtering into Hollywood. And time code was one, it had like a four screen, split screen story being told at the same time. And then it was all shot in one take on four cameras. Wow! It was around the time that digital cameras were like new. And it was kind of like a bit of a hipstery thing before hipsters, but they were really into it. But the director, Mike Figgis, he is a musician. And he he said he had the concept for the the movie and he couldn't write it until he realised he had to write it on musical paper. So each camera had its own score. Wow. And then he put into the script, because it was set in LA, uh, earthquakes every now and again to bring all four cameras to a sort of like a shaky like point of unison. So the whole film, which should be a mess to watch because it's four screens at the same time, it's just like a symphony. Because each camera is an instrument and he just plays them. And sometimes it and so it's and I'll, so that way of thinking to me is just like, I love that kind of shit. It's like, whoa. You know, mm. how you can structure something where there's a lot going on, but it can be really easy on the ear, mm. which is what music is. It's like music is busy. Like five instruments should not sound good together, but it works because you know, because it's got rhythm and structure. So that's a big thing of like you know how I theorize uh maybe how I theorize creativity I don't know I don't know mm-hmm. I haven't really thought about it before
2: yeah that's interesting I suppose it it sounds like you write quite consistently and I suppose I wonder how that fits in with what you're talking about because there there seems to be a kind of a musical nature of needing to bring things together to see how they work together. So yeah, maybe you need to get it all out before you can see how things combine. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think that, that sort of helps. Um, As you get more into like the industry of things, there's more pressure to produce something. So you've got to be like more like on it. You haven't got the luxury of just like producing lots of stuff and editing it. But that's still basically my process, like produce lots of stuff and edit into shape afterwards. Even when I'm teaching, I sort of like plan stuff, deliver it, and then afterwards make sense of it, you know, and then refine it into something mm. for the next time, you know. So that's that's kind of kind of the overall approach, I think. Which is yeah, yeah. which keeps it interesting because you're always discovering.
2: So when I read Hold Tight, I felt like I felt like it could have been written without the inclusion of masculinity as a, as mm. a theme. And I suppose I, I was interested as to why that that was one of the lenses that the
1: book took place through. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I suppose, when I was um, talking about it with, with, with Kit, uh, Influx Press, Kit Kalis, um, he got the manuscript, one of the first people to read it, and he was like, yeah, it's about it's about black culture, it's about millennials and grime is about black masculinity, you know, almost by default because that's the demographic that by and large owns that music, um, young black men sort of thing. Um, obviously it's not exclusive to young black men. You've got young black women, you've got young white men, you've got young white women. Are there any lady sovereign? Is that it? Maybe she the only one. Um, the one <laughs> I can think of, yeah. yeah. But it's like, so I think that that was just sort of maybe making explicit something inherent in the in the genre, maybe you know. Um, but I know what you mean. Was it like you just felt mm, it's it's not so much about masculinity? No,
2: that's not at
3: all.
1: No,
2: I I meant more that I could have imagined how another author might have just had a cool idea for some songs that they really liked, and they wanted to take a tour of the genre and the fact that there was masculinity in there i'm not gonna lie. I used it as a trojan horse in some cases, so I bought it for <laughs> a few people and the the grime element was definitely the hook for some of my friends And yeah. I, and maybe you'll also find yourself
3: exploring <laughs> yeah
1: yeah masculinity yeah masculinity, so. <laughs> I mean that's fair enough actually um it's definitely like. Because to me it was, there were sort of like levels of complexity that I added to it as I went on. So even though it's consistently sort of like fun, but it's also consistently quite serious. You know, like there's a lot of it. I didn't turn down the serious stuff when I needed to. So there's some massive chunks of just like, it's just like proper essay writing in there, um, which... It's quite difficult, but I was like, I'm not going like, to try to keep it light when, for the sake of it. But as I was writing it, I feel as though I was able to, to talk about other things that I thought were interesting through this, through this weigh-in of a playlist of songs that are ostensibly grime. I think one of the big things was I kind of felt the urge to talk about Black British culture before that part of the conversation got lost, because I could see Grime just like blowing up and turning into whatever it's turning into now, and I and I hadn't seen anyone talk about the fact that it was a, a black British artifact. So really, there was some political going on from the start. Mm. If I wanted to make it even more about like black masculinity, it would have felt like a very different book. If that was my political agenda, it wasn't. Um, it was a. It was like a. It was a sub agenda to talk about black masculinity. Mm. If it was the main agenda, whole type would feel really different because mm. I'll be trying to make a point about about men and about young men, about young black men. But my main point was about this is black British history here, and we're not going to lose that fact, you know, as grime becomes more mainstream becomes commodified by the mainstream. So that was the political agenda that might have fueled it. That kind of gave me a bit of like fire to to actually like push push it out there.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. It's almost the opposite of blacklisted in the sense that you couldn't have written it any later. Because if you'd have yeah. written it much later.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what that is that is funny you say that because I, I genuinely thought that I'd missed the boat. I was like oh. it was like 2017, you know, when it was been talked about getting getting published and i genuinely thought this is too late i thought like we're like a summer out
3: here mm.
1: um but then it turns out that it was actually probably it could have come out a year later and it still would have been all right but you you're right it's like i was i was just in there for like most relevance yeah mm. yeah just that's why i had to write it quickly as well because i knew that if i didn't finish it 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 might not be relevant yeah yeah, yeah. I'm.
2: I mean, hey, I would be really interested to hear your take on the Wiley Stormzy interaction. Yeah, just because I feel like there are so many different layers to that in terms of what we're talking about in, with the the genre of grime, mm. um, and I also think that there's a lot in there around masculinity and race. Yeah, and, uh, definitely. Definitely. I uh,
3: mean, yeah, I offer
2: that up. Does just, just
3: how
1: have yeah, you? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, a lot of it was about race. Like Wiley, Wiley's not silly. He's eccentric, and he's actually quite a good like character actor as well, because you know he's he's not this cartoon that is easy to present him as, and he knows that which is why he releases songs just when he's in the middle of causing all this like internet beef, because it sells, basically. But he's acutely sensitive to the race politics of what his genre, what grime is all about. And I think that because he's so sensitive to it, like a Richter scale needle, when someone like Stormzy, who I think is also he's... Stormzy's playing in... He's playing by the rules of the mainstream in a way that Wiley doesn't like and that Wiley can't do, actually, for whatever reason. Because I think Stormzy is, like, the approachable other. Wiley is the unapproachable other. Wiley only made it into the palace by creating something that was undeniably, like, had an undeniable impact upon British culture. Stormzy Mm -hmm. hasn't done that. Stormzy has is part of that culture. Yeah. Stormzy is almost like um, relieved. Really, like people are relieved to be able to hug someone like Stormzy, and Stormzy so approachable and so like so on board with the system. Not in like a negative way. He's not like a sellout or anything like that. Far from it. But he is a. Face of black masculinity, of black millennial masculinity that is approachable and intelligent and passion led and liberal and all those things that modern neoliberal society wants to believe in. So Stormzy can get away with rapping about, you know, having sex with your girl and kicking you in the face. Because he also basically endorses the culture and the system that wants to remain dominant, you know. So when Stormzy says things like "Rude Boy," you're never too big for Adele. It's like you, the mainstream wants to cheer because it's like it's an endorsement of Adele and what she represents. Mm-hmm. When Stormzy is like heralded as the voice of um, modern liberalism for a disenfranchised youth, that's something which. The liberal, you know, the the liberal mainstream want to celebrate because it is worth celebrating. Wiley's like Wiley doesn't like that. I I don't think. I feel like Wiley hates the idea of people not having integrity. That's his thing, and I think that he's quite paternalistic. You know, Um, everything about Wiley's biography says that. He's genuinely paternalistic, you know, like he brings people along. He cares about the culture. He cares about the culture so much that he won't leave it alone. You know, um, he is like an uncle to the scene. Yeah. And he includes Stormzy in in that. But the minute he gets a whiff of people not having like integrity, and it was all about Ed, Ed Sheeran. He was just like, how is it that Ed... Is able to do certain things just because he's Ed and then it's like I can't and um, so I think that for him it was it was a race thing and storms he was in had a foot in that camp maybe. I don't know, I don't know. Um I suppose something I even... that really stood out to me as a a complex but important
2: moment was when their interaction because they were going backwards and forwards, but then then they started releasing. Songs about each other, right? Yeah. And I have friends that hated that. Mm-hmm. But I but there was part of me that really liked that because I'm just thinking about how you framed stormzy in terms of this uh approachable other. Actually, he so he's he's doing a, a tour. He's just released the album that might have, I mean might not have got to number one yet, but it was, you know, going there. Yeah. But he was also like I'm still going to release fire tracks that yeah. are that are not PC, yeah, that are not even watered down versions of yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, oh, of yeah, it fire was tracks, and so and and I felt like that was an important um, an important moment because it it appeared so contradictory, but I yeah. felt like it was quite powerful that Stormzy could be like, "Well, I'm still going to do it." Yeah, definitely
1: because this is part of it for me because for me the thing is is that Stormzy knows the rules of engagement right in a lot of different contexts like he understands the rules of engagement for being a grime mc like you you have to put out diss tracks if someone sends for you you reply like he understands that that's important the rules of engagement are also that you go and do America and you go and do a tour and you do a song with Little Mix if you want to survive this industry. Stormzy is like, to me, people like him, Tiny Temper, to an extent, Skepta and JME, to an extent, they are your archetypal do-good black African boys. And I say that because I'm one of them too. Okay. (laughs) Like, black African boys do really well in their exams. Black Caribbean boys don't do so well. There are complex reasons for this, and it's got nothing to do with ethnicity. Um, It's deeply cultural and shifting all the time, and these trends will change, but as it stands, there are generations of black African boy who end up in well-paid jobs, making lots of money, understanding the rules of engagement. Stormzy, in the industry that he's in, and in the culture that he's in, understands the rules of engagement. So the Skepta, Skepta, like almost like studied Jamaican culture in the way that a lot of Black Africans study Jamaican culture. Right? Like, a lot of white people don't know this because Black people are Black people. But if you're from Ghana, Nigeria, you're not from the Caribbean. So Wagwan blood, all that stuff, and all that culture—that's a foreign culture to you. It's a, it's a foreign culture, but. You learn it because when we were growing up, I say we like people like me, Skepta. I'm talking like I know these people, but we're of a generation basically. We were surrounded by cool blackness and that was Jamaican and you learn it. I've got a lot of friends and cousins who learned how to be cool, which meant how to be a bit more Caribbean. Mm -hmm. That's changing now, but Stormzy again, he's a generation later. Stormzy's like 10 years younger, maybe a bit, no, maybe even more than that like 15 years I don't know maybe 15 years younger than like Skepta or someone like that definitely 20 years younger than Wiley whatever it is he came up having to learn the rules of engagement for how to be cool in his generation but he's also a very well sort of like a successful black boy you know I know Stormzy did well in his exams like I don't even need to google it I know he did like and I know he read a lot when he was a kid guaranteed like i I'll put money on it that Stormzy read a lot when he was a kid, because there's something in Black African culture, especially at that time, that that's one of the things that's instilled in you. And he knew how to do well. He tackled that Glastonbury main stage like uh, you know, like a GCSE, you know, and he got an A star. Like he's just diligent. He tackled it like a GCSE he was focused. He didn't wing it. That was deliberate, hard work, effort, for content, execution. The kid was not fucking about. Like, you know, it wasn't just like swagger and talent. It was, it was fucking like, <laughs> you know. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And I say that because, uh, like I say, a lot of black African boys and girls are like that. Um, Tiny Temper's another one, you know. Tiny temper is not like, you know, Road. He's again. I know that Patrick did well at school, you know, and he can walk into a room with like, you know, royalty and probably hold his own and say the right things and compose and comport himself in a way that can can get him through that situation. In the same way that someone like Stormzy can, I bet. Like I bet that Stormzy's fantastic in a room with anyone, you know, in the same way that I am. Like, put me in a room and I'll I'll, I'll be good in that room. Mm-hmm. Someone like Wiley, he's got some of that, like, old school yard, like, I don't give a shit, I'm doing me sort of thing, you know, like, <laughs> that, put Wiley in a room and you're like, can you imagine putting Wiley on the main stage at Glastonbury, what are you going to get? <laughs> you're like, what? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know what I would get. What happens if you put Wiley in a room with like a bunch of, you know, a bunch of modern day royalty? Like, who knows? So I think that's the big difference between those two. But, um, but the big thing is that Wiley's integrity is, is like unshakable um, because he is all about the culture and he's all about bars and he's all about you know, respecting the culture to the point where he won't let anything slide. You know, the minute Drake puts out a track that's like, he's like, why is Drake doing that? He'll he'll send for everyone. He'll mm. send for Drake. He'll send for, you know, Stormzy. He'll send for Ed Sheeran because he cares that much about it. So there are no losers there. Like St- Stormzy Wiley, there were no losers there at all. Um, but there were nuances to their to their identities that i think uh I'm, I'm not sure if anyone's really gone into it yet i i probably could i probably should one day like there's a there's some real nuances there are like, tiny nuances that are quite important which which are worth which are worth exploring
2: i mean it sounds like you're you're highlighting some really interesting differences there so there's an age difference yeah,
3: there's
2: massive generational uh, difference. There's, there's a cultural and, and ethnic difference. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like there's an understanding of those differences as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and their come-ups as well It's just really interesting. Like Stormzy came up on YouTube, you know, he's, he's that generation. He literally came up on YouTube videos that became more and more popular. While well, he came up on... Is suspicious that
2: he was slyly always signed because, yeah. because of the Adidas. This is the thing. Yeah, yeah, true. Even in the even in the early videos, I'm like, the Adidas it's just was so consistent, the Adidas. And I'm yeah,
1: like yeah.
2: I mean, either it was genius marketing and then Adidas were like, We're on it. Or yeah maybe it was like a, a Lily Allen type thing, you know, where it was like, oh, underground artist.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. The industry's is- shady like that I would not be surprised Um, and that's kind of what Wiley alludes to as well that he's sort of getting getting played by the industry or playing the industry I don't know like Wiley doesn't like that because Wiley has like had to always be independent of the industry even when he tried to make it in the industry you know Mm -hmm. he's always had to basically go it alone and own his own publishing you know Mm -hmm. Um, which is another thing actually I mean if you look at entrepreneurial stuff in grime versus like industry stuff someone like dizzy rascal his first number one was on his own label so when he put out dance with me calvin harris no wait hold on no that was calvin harris's first number one dizzy rascal dance with me was like his bid for like a charting poppy dance song i don't think his label wanted it i think his label told him nah but then he put it out on his own label. Mm. Bang. One of his biggest ever records. Calvin mm-hmm. Harris's first number one. Look at Calvin Harris now. You know, ridiculous. Calvin Harris is in like the 30 under 30 most richest musicians in the world. It's just mad. So he, that's one example. Then you get like the Adenuga Brothers. JME is 100% independent, you know, and he's never signed to anyone doing the same thing he was doing when he was a teenager. Yeah doing well with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember Akala telling me once that people don't even understand that someone like Bob Marley, Bob Marley didn't need like a record label to back him. He was making big money. There are a lot of artists in the world making big money just on their own, doing their own thing, Mm -hmm. owning their own publishing. And I feel like that's another thing which, you know, in this generation, a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't care less about that. If you look at someone like Stormzy, they don't care how he's making it. They just see a superstar yeah that's true. But he's not independent.
3: Mm.
1: He's he's had to get bigger than the label to be able to make things happen. But not everyone gets bigger than the label, no way. Stormzy's an anomaly there like he's like bigger than record labels. I think I don't know how it works. I'm not in the music industry but but that's like
2: yeah. Well, I I couldn't tell you which record label, label Stormzy was signed to. But nah. I, I could tell you about Stormzy. So I mean
1: hopefully that is a mm. test as long as he's bigger than the label. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which you kind of need because God knows that, you know, black artists struggle enough as it is because black artists are making stuff for a mainstream that is like, you know, 86% not them. So <laughs> you, you, you know, you need the label backing and you need the majors backing you.
3: Mm. You know,
1: I've seen it in publishing. There are not a lot of black male writers writing like anything really novels. Forget it. There was like one black male novel published in 2017, I think. So one, one, and there, yeah, it was in oh. 2017. It was just um, what's uh, what's his name, Ro- Robin Travis, the one that, uh, that uh, "Mama Can't Raise No Man." I think that was it. Um, on "Own It" by. Um, crystal crystal morgan's uh imprint i think that's right i'll have to double check that so don't quote me on that but the figures are tiny yeah Um, blackmail writers don't really exist there's only you know there's, there's like a handful so to put something out there that's going to get backed by the industry you need industry backing which is a shame because if they don't back you, then you're never going to get out there. And then, how do you expect people to become consistent writers or consistent anything? So, yeah, labour politics, man. It's a it's a mad one. It's a mad one. Do you, you have like ideas up? about what you want to put out next? Yeah, always, mm. always. And that's that goes right back to what we were saying earlier about core values, because. You can get swayed, you know, like I might start thinking I want to put out something because I want to have something out. That's not good. That's not a good reason. That's that's a terrible reason to put out work, you know, just to have something out. Like, what's the point? Or because I want to make loads of money off it. So that's an awful reason to put out work. Um, That that direction leads you to um, mediocre NARS, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Just putting stuff out for bad reasons. So, you know, I think you've got to have that integrity and that intent and that fuel, having a sense of purpose to it. Um, and this is where also it's really good to have like-minded people in the industry, which is really rare. So, in like publishing, there aren't a lot of black publishing, like uh, people high up in publishing. I was lucky enough to land a dialogue with Charmaine Lovegrove. So we have like deep conversations about, about, you know, what I'm writing, why I'm writing it. She edited, blacklisted, and we really talked hard about what is this? Who is it for? Why are we writing it? You know? And that really helped because she's got an agenda too, which overlaps with my agenda. And actually it's the same agenda. Um, Without that kind of like-mindedness, Mm. then you've got no one that sort of gets your mission or even understands it. And if that. they don't understand it, they're probably scared of it and they're scared of it. They're not going to publish it. Blacklisted would have never been published by anyone. You know? I feel like it's crazy when I think about it. Like, there's going to be a lot of people out there that can write stuff that needs to be out there, narratives that need to be heard, and they're never, ever going to get published. Or they'll never even write it in the first place because they think, why would I write my narrative? Mm. Meanwhile, you're getting 10 of the same book about whatever other narrative that the mainstream loves hearing about, you know? So, yeah, that's the frustration. So it's, it's a bit political, I suppose, just existing as... Like life is political. Yeah, it is, it is. Mm. Everything's a bit of a political move, you know? So... Yeah, yeah. That's a that's an interesting one. And you gotta sort of think to, how political do I wanna be, you know, are all my books gonna be about race forever and ever and ever? I don't know, maybe. But there's other stuff I can think about, you know?
2: I mean I yeah, I'm lucky because I I'm not a creative in the same way, mm. but I can need I can acknowledge a tension between do you write the stuff you want to write, or do you write the stuff that you want to be read? Or, or right. you, like, you know, there, there are pressures there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, reflecting on it, it seems like Hold Tight was definitely something you wanted to write. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you know, so. Yeah, 100%.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I wrote that. Whoa, it's kicking off here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see just the flames in your face. Yeah. Oh, my God. Look at that. Ah, oh, kicking blocking. off. There we go. Sorry. I'm using up all of our time looking at a fire. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, flames are so
2: mesmerising. I've had some amazing conversations looking at flames.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a lovely thing just to stare at a fire. Um, um, yeah, for a city boy like me as well, it's kind of cool to be doing more of this kind of thing. Moving wood from them. You found it
2: leaving uh a big city yeah the outside of a city
1: yeah i mean weirdly enough because of the way we we're set up now not much changed. like i was still connected to the same people and still basically have the same like circles that i had when i was in london i also just had two kids so i didn't have a social life so that didn't change so there, there, there was no change yeah. there like, <laughs> we, we weren't going out anyway so um the weirdest thing is that, like, because I was in Walthamstow, so I was in, like, gentrification capital. Um, And before that, I was in Highbury. And I grew up in Brixton, and then we all know what Brixton's like now. So, weirdly enough, I was often still in a minority when I was in London in a lot of places, mm. which is just mad. So... I'd be in like Lloyd Park in Walthamstow and there'd be like one other black person. If I could see in the entire, like, I would look around and it's just, you know. So in a weird sort of way, even though I've moved to a much whiter part of the country, not that much has changed in terms of like who's around me because London's got like, you know, that, that thing of different communities living on top of each other but not actually interacting um different spaces yeah there's a bit of a myth of inclusion in london there is diversity there's more people and, you, and there are more cultures but they don't all live in each other's pockets and homes so um so weirdly enough that hasn't changed anything that much but
3: mm.
1: yeah
2: yeah that is interesting yeah so i uh, was born and raised in hackney and okay so there was there was i suppose like a real change in the parks and the social spaces, and there were these kind of, yeah, you know like you, it's almost like you missed the memo, you'd go back like a week later, and it would be a totally different place, yeah totally different people in it, yeah and, um and yeah, it's uh it's really I suppose I find that it's quite sad for me, but I find it interesting, the tipping point of uh of gentrification and how and how that happens yeah you know yeah definitely but yeah i hear what you're saying it uh for you you have
1: a similar thing around with the people around you yeah yeah And i'm kind of used to being a bit of a loner anyway not like a loner, like no friends but moving to a context alone that's something that i've done from when i was at like primary school like being the only one to go to the next place only ones go to the next place so that's That's just been like a standard. So I've never been scared of that,
2: you know. That's an interesting thing to acknowledge. Hmm. Huh. It's true though. What do you think think that was about being the only one to go into the next place?
1: So no, I mean, probably just coincidental to begin with, but then you get used to it as a sort of like, that's, that becomes something of a comfort zone, you know. So I'm very comfortable being, one of one in a context I'm very comfortable with that um, probably more more comfortable than not being one of one but that said when I got into like publishing I love going to events where there are other black writers I love doing panels with other black like I, I love like the fact that I'll go somewhere and I'll be like shouting out Derek who was in the crowd and calling him up you know and then Yomi's there with me and then like Nels Abbey will be there and then all oh, I can go and I'll be like interviewing a carver and then we'll be talking about someone else that we both know yeah I'd I'd, I'd actually love that like that's that's really cool mm. and that's like having having like a a friendship circle that I that I might not have had like pro- professionally because I never had like loads of other black teacher friends for example or you know, even when I was at uni, like loads of other black people on my course. So that, that's something which is quite new to me that I really love, you know. Like Rennie, Rennie was at my launch. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, Rennie's there and I said, you know, hanging out with her and then like Charmaine that's So it's like, it's cool. It's like, yeah, I like that. I like that. That's empowering, you know. Yeah, I was going to say,
2: hearing you talk about that made me feel like there's a movement there.
3: Yeah. There's some,
2: you know? Exactly. I don't know if that resonates, but I suppose the way you talk about fighting is that it's, it's the show. It's It's political. And so, you know, having, having people that you feel are part of the same or pulling in the same direction must be sustaining
1: and exciting. Yeah, it's really important. And it's like, like we all end up talking about each other mm. and stuff so you know like Nikesh and his work in The Good Immigrant mm. you know I'll I'll reference that and then I'll you know we talk and then Nikesh shouted me out on the radio and I would like endorse his book and then you know then I talked to Afua Hirsch and then Safe I was supposed to be in Safe but it didn't work out at the time which is really un- un- annoying but then so there's like an interconnection thing. I suppose it's it's just like being a part of a team, you know, mm. um which I think is really important because the numbers are small. Like there are not there aren't many black people in the country. First of all, yeah, in, in publishing or in any given industry, there aren't many at all. So, so it's like coming together is always important, you know. And I tr- I, I try to make a point of that in blacklisted so I made I reference people's work who I felt like needs to be referenced and people that I'd met and I'll talk about them you know um because it was like yeah sort of uh acknowledging that so that's a nice thing I like that I experienced a real change
2: when I became a psychologist because before that I think I thought the idea of referencing was a bit stuffy mm. But now I almost see it as you're you're like acknowledging the lineage you know and and you're 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 just if it, it feels it's almost like what you're describing with the the social element of seeing people you know in the crowds and being like, "Come up here, yeah, now I really love a reference and if i and if I read something and it's not referenced, I feel frustrated because I'm like I want to be able to trace it back, you know
3: mm.
2: Mm. yeah. I really Definitely. like that the kind of the heritage of ideas is kind of is kind of cool to me.
1: Yeah, and it's important, and also it's also part part of the learning. You know, so when when I was on a panel with Derek, Charmaine, and Paul Gilroy, that was mad for me and Derek because we were like, yeah, we're like, shit, man. It's like Paul Gilroy, like there ain't no black and Indian Jack. This is like a seminal text, seriously difficult text, seriously important that you know, we've wrestled with over the years and he's like sitting there and we're talking to him and he's looking at us as like, you know, people who are continuing the conversation and he's actually quite young in his mind. Like he's, he's really, really like, he's thinking about now. He's thinking about revising everything. And we're doing that because we're like a generation after him. And so just like that was like a physical manifestation of that, of that like heritage of thought,
3: mm.
1: you know, in, in critical thinking. Yeah. And it was happening physically, like we're in a room talking. That was crazy. And that really showed me how important it is to, um to, to be part of that conversation and to respect, respectfully be part of it as, as well. Mm. You know, like I'll never, ever um assume that I'm not part of a, a moment, you know, that, I'm a maverick, or I'm doing my thing. No way, it's connected to other people doing our thing, you know. And I think that that's that's an important thing to to like recognize and and like celebrate too, um, because it is very empowering, you know. So yeah, yeah, I quite I quite like it's it's what someone like um, Bernadine Evaristo does amazingly well because she champions black writers, um not in a sort of like positive appreciate uh positive discrimination way either, not in like a lazy way of just like, oh, they're black, it's great. But she like seeks out the good content and makes sure that it gets a platform and she promotes it. Mm. So the fact that she gave me a cover quote for Blacklisted is just like phenomenal. Um I was like blown away by that. Yeah. And and it's because that she could see that it was a valuable thing and she wanted to endorse it and promote it in a way that maybe she hadn't been, you know, earlier in her career. I mean, she had to win the Booker Prize or win half a Booker Prize, whatever the hell happened now, <laughs> to get the recognition that she's been due, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone like that is a real like shining example of how to do it, yeah. You know? yeah. So, like. Big up Bernardine, in a massive way. Yeah, um, nothing but love. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you thought we'd talk about? Oh, no idea, no, no. idea. We've talked about all, all all sorts of things. What What What, what time are we on? Okay, here we go. Um, no, I feel, like, I feel like
2: we've had a chunky chat. But do you know what? Yeah, there's one. There's one thing that I would be. I'd feel remiss uh, if we didn't talk about it, which is no. John Kano. Kano, of course. Kano, man. Yeah, I feel like Kano is quite a poetic thing to end on because we've we talked about Wiley. Yeah, um, and I know that you went to a Kano gig. Which, if that was the gig, yeah, know, that, that's interesting that that was the
1: gig. So I suppose I no, my I, wife. Um, my wife hooked it up because she fancies Kano. Basically, like oh. I've already put that out there in writing. That's you know hold tight somewhere. I think that's um, a human, it's a human phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all fancy Kano. Like this yeah. is just a this is a fact. Like, you know, he's um he's an enigmatic and charming and just an attractive soul, you know. Um but what what I love about, I mean the the thing about Kano was that he's got so much depth to his to his art um the he's almost going to become like a Sade kind of character. Like Sade, at the end of Sade's like career, and she's worth like, I don't know what she's worth, like 50 mil, I don't know what. She was doing like one album every eight years, like one album every 10 years, you know. Mm-hmm. But still getting the, getting the critical, you know, credit, the plaudits and the sales. I think Kano's going to be like that. I feel like Kano's going to, gonna mature like the finest maturing thing um because he's weirdly enough he still might be underrated like i think so yeah he's he's, he's not at the front of people's minds like a superstar um he's still kind of accessible despite the fact that he's like great on tv Nice. Uh, he's got he's got acting chops now. Like he he was good in Top Boy. Like you know, there's no two ways but He was good, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and his art is getting better and better. Like I
2: feel like artists, of albums. Artists struggle getting older sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I've well, firstly, Made in the Manor came out of nowhere, and I was like, what? Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! Okay, we have an album now. Yeah, and it was brilliant, and. Mm-hmm. You know, I just was like, "Wow!" And it just felt like it was—it was totally relatable that this could yeah. be, you know, stories from Kano's life. But he was older; he wasn't trying to be, you know, uh, appealing to the young crowds. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't, but it could be appealing to younger people. You know, that there were there were really human stories in
1: that. I thought it was yeah, like definitely. Yeah, he's uh, he's yeah. He's kind of um, managed to be, managed to grow consistently in a way which is just like amazing to see. And it gives him this like this actual mature confidence, which is like really impressive. But he looks like the guy, like, you know, he looks like he is in charge of his universe. Yeah, it's really mad. Like his stage show is like this is someone who is not being led by any other forces other than Kano's vision. And yeah. and it's like you're you're in it. Even even someone like Stormzy, who bossed it at Glastonbury, and his albums have got their vision stuff. He's he's young. He's younger, so he's got like he's been like persuaded by other things slightly. You know, not to the point of compromising his own integrity. because can see that he's still growing, and he's still a bit like I've got to do this, and I've got to. Know, be this. I've got to be this kind of aggression, I've got to be this kind of inspiring. Kano's like just like staring into the fire, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah. Kano's so inspired, and yeah, and and also he's he's just like a ridiculous lyricist, which he has been for a long time. Like, some of those Kano mixtapes from 2007, 2008 beats and bars and stuff like that just just crazy lyrical talent for a long time oh my gosh you know? a bar that oh. always sticks in my head that i don't
2: you know i i don't even i'm not sure why but it's from night night okay mm-hmm. and, um i'd forgotten about night night i used to play it on the way into school when i was a teacher he just would come right. I liked it and um and he played it at his most recent gig for his for his latest album. Hmm. and and, and i i suppose it was interesting because i didn't really realize that anyone else would like that song it was kind of a guilty pleasure for me Ah. um but there's there's a line in there around he's he's talking about um i text you at some dumb times something something, and your number my thumb my yeah and i I was like what i know
1: it's deep poetry oh my gosh yeah and yeah that's the thing he's a he's a poet really i mean that's the that's a short conclusion. Like Ken is a poet. He actually said that when he writes everything, he writes everything so he can look over the words and then change the words to give it the extra poetic yeah. like edge. And you can see that like yeah, yeah. the guy's a poet, like through and through. He's not just barring. He's like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah, I'm. I'm happy to end on Kano. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Kano, man. Uh, yeah, he is yeah. Kano's Kano's the guy, and I feel like there's 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 probably still quite quite a lot more to come from Kano, you know. And I think he'll have a different kind of success because I remember in the interview he had with Carla that was on U- YouTube, he was saying how after the role at Hall. Um, hoodie's all summer thing. He was like, now what? And Nakala's like, fam, you just played roll out at all. Like that is the a pinnacle for a lot of people. And it's like, yeah. And I can sort of see both of their perspectives there. Mm. Like I can see why Kano would feel like mm, there's more. And why people would be like, what more do you want? You know? But I but I I I just feel like it will get deeper over time with him. Yeah. I think with him
2: I in a similar way, so not being able to predict what I would get if we put Wiley on stage at Glastonbury. I'm not yeah. sure volcano will go next, you know. But, yeah. but I feel like he he he's very comfortable with himself, and so I'm really interested yeah. to see where he takes us, you know. Absolutely. Um, like you know, part part of me wouldn't be yeah, part of me wouldn't be surprised if I if I couldn't predict at, at all what it would be what it would be. Um, yeah, yeah. But well, I, I mean, I real talk. I hope he just keeps making music in, in, until he's a granddad. You know, <laughs> and we just have this
1: kind of this narration across our lives from. Kind of- yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Hopefully, that's that's what's going to happen. Hopefully, mm. nice one. Ah, what a nice way to end the conversation. Uh, well, listen, it was
2: lovely to chat and uh, and to see a little glimpse of your of your home and
1: your fire. Yeah, a little tiny glimpse there of yes, of uh, some of the setup, you know, and um, a of the library. The library, yes,
2: a bookshelf yes. is. Uh, I love it. it
1: up there. This is the this is the kind of the contemporaries. With my own book face out. Look at that awful. Yeah, yeah you got to do that. You got to do that. You put your own face out, and then some of this is all the the lot that I was talking about.
2: You're making me feel bad now because I I just changed my bookshelves um away from thematic. Oh yeah. So I really wanted I really wanted them themed and now and now they um and now they're purely aesthetic in color order. Yeah. It's we have like for about a week and I'm not going to lie I'm I'm tense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we we'll have a bit of both. We've got the rainbow color-coded but then little thematic areas
3: mm.
1: as well so it's mainly my wife though it's mainly sophie that's been like the brains behind that i can't lie i didn't really put that too much thought into i just put the shelves up hey okay, there you go <laughs> nice one
0: just like that we have episode 20 in the book so it was such a pleasure to talk to jeffrey please do Check him out and his writing, all all of that is linked down below. And if you're interested in staying in the loop with all things to do with the sizzle, you can join my mailing list. And uh, you know, that will mean that you get notified about upcoming episodes. It also means that you might get some semi regular emails about how to use psychology in your everyday life. We've had some really lovely feedback from people, it seems like they're very useful. We've got some absolute bangers of episodes coming up that have been recorded they're going to be coming out very soon so if you know anybody that you think would be interested in the sizzle please do share using the links below until then though stay safe keep doing your thing and i will see you next episode So